Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Lindsay Shepard, a fellow with the International Security Program. And I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Program. On this week's episode, we discuss all things quantum sensing. Okay, Lindsay, and before we bring our guests on, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page of what quantum sensing is. So I'm going to read how our guests define it in their recent paper. Quantum sensors measure the same thing as other sensors, physical phenomena such as magnetic fields or acceleration. However, they are unique in that they make these measurements at the highest levels of sensitivity that are physically possible with quantum mechanics, and they often feature greatly enhanced performance as a result. So now that we know the baseline of what our our guests are going to talk about, we can't wait to share this conversation with you. Well, Caitlin and I are so thrilled to be joined here today by Sarah Jacobs Gambarini, a policy fellow at the National Defense University Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction. Hi, thank you so much for having me and congratulations on the podcast. I'll just go ahead and give my usual government caveat that I am here in my own capacity and not speaking for the National Defense University, DOD or the U.S. government. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. And then we are also joined here today by Bob Wiley. Division Chief of the Quantum System Division at the Georgia Tech Research Institute. Welcome, Bob. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you both so much for taking time out of your day to record this episode with us. We will jump right to it. So our topic today is quantum sensing. So we often hear about quantum computing or cryptography or even simply just quantum, and it's usually framed in terms of a race against other nations or you know a, a competition among other nations, primarily China. But given the significance of quantum sensing to defense and national security, we thought this particular topic deserved its own deep dive. So Bob, I'm going to turn to you first to help us kind of demystify what exactly is quantum sensing? What is a quantum sensor? And why are we prioritizing and pursuing development of this capability? I would ask you to, you know, help us think through this with some examples or use cases to really anchor our conversation in in the practical discussion. So on one level, uh, it's not so bad. Quantum sensor, right? One of those words maybe is clear at least. So a sensor is just something that senses some physical phenomenology. So an example is a sensor for magnetic field measurement or a sensor that senses acceleration. And there are many others. So any phenomenon can have a sensor for that phenomenon. We would also include clocks there as well. And so then a quantum sensor is just a specific type of sensor that will do that at or near the uh, limits of physics as described by quantum mechanics. And so in some ways, a quantum sensor is just kind of a special term for a a sensor that operates near those limits. And then there are many kind of examples and use cases. So the most famous example is probably an atomic clock. So that is a specific type of quantum sensor. And it's also kind of the most, you know, well-used type of quantum sensor. It's used in GPS. And so in that sense, you know, many of us are using it every day all the time. And there are other use cases as well. I I mentioned magnetometers, you know, special accelerometers, but they're all, you know, they're all special versions of sensors that have been around and continue to be around in non-quantum versions. 
So maybe this is a, a layman's question. I do mostly space policy research, so I love that you brought up GPS. But does quantum sensor, are we just sensing things with more accuracy or more quickly? Oh, is it just at a more minute scale? It really depends. So a quantum sensor isn't really one thing. There are many different versions of quantum sensors. And so in the case of atomic clocks, usually it's just better given the package constraints. So specifically, atomic clocks usually have better performance, especially in long-term accuracy. And many quantum sensors have that feature, especially those based on atoms. Right? The reason atomic clocks are good is usually because you're referencing a frequency to a transition in an atom and atoms are all the same and they're very stable. So that's a common feature of quantum sensors, but it's not universal. And there are other cases where the benefit is, is something a little different. So another example is people consider making antennas with a quantum sensor. So you can sense electric fields with atoms. And in that case, the advantage is driven by the difference in doing it electrically, where you have to have some large antenna versus using atoms, uh, which actually don't really care about the wavelength that you're sensing. And so there it's more of a trade in something, you know, having a big antenna to get high sensitivity versus having a small kind of container of atoms for high sensitivity. And there are many versions of those trade-offs. In some cases, it's even price, you know, having something that's precise and portable, but at a price point that's better than what currently exists. Got it. So depending on what the sensor is, and we can get into this a little bit later as we talk about technical maturity, there may be some either improvement in performance or sensitivity or stability or size that would, based on our specific application area, you know, motivate us to want to move in that direction and think about using a quantum sensor. So we really have to get kind of into the details on specific applications or sensor types to really have kind of a, this particular sensor has this higher sensitivity or this better attribute. So we need to get a little bit more specific than just a broad level quantum. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in, in each, even in like, if you imagine confining yourself to atomic clocks, right? Atomic clocks span the technology readiness level range. They span the performance range and they you know span the size weight and power range and so there's a lot of diversity even within one specific kind of quantum sensor and all of those feed into the applications that that sensor would be suitable for so bob and i worked together on a paper on quantum sensing over this past year and it's just wonderful to to hear bob voice again saying it depends because this is something that happened over and over again. And it's, this is why it's so important to have these conversations with quantum physicists and policy professionals, because quantum is just one of those areas that receives a lot of hype and public interest and in media reporting. But for the layman or even many policy professionals, it's hard to truly grasp. And often the reason for that is that it, it's complicated quantum physics papers or overhyped, oversimplified media reports. And in that way, it's really hard to tell timescales and discern realistic potential for these systems. So it's really important to have these kind of conversations and collaborations with the soft and hard sciences. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a lot of media attention around a quantum satellite that China launched. So obviously, the United States is not the only one pursuing this technology, but there are other actors like China. And Lindsay mentioned that earlier. So what other organizations or actors are involved in this research or might be pursuing it for national security reasons? And what are some kind of use cases that maybe they're looking into or the United States government is looking into for our own defense? 
So with any emerging technology race, the first mover really can exploit the technological advantages on the battlefield or off the battlefield. And so you give the example of China, and obviously quantum is an area that China is really investing in heavily. And in this period of great power competition, if the US military fails to stay ahead in the race to field and integrate new or even improved quantum sensors, there can be technological asymmetries for the United States. So let's take the claim of China having these quantum radars. Chinese researchers are claiming that they have a next-generation radar system that can detect stealth bombers and track ballistic missiles. Now, as you mentioned, there's a lot of media hype about this and, and the development of a quantum radar, which, if developed, would be powerfully disruptive. But the technology is not mature. Most people, and I'm sure that Bob would agree with this, would say that the technology that we have right now in quantum, these type of radars that they're claiming are really unlikely. There have certainly been lab successes, but that this capability is probably a long way out and that even questions about any improved capability that would come from this type of radar. So there are a lot of questions here. But even that said, the problem is that we still have to explore whether these capabilities have that kind of potential to disrupt strategic deterrence or transform modern warfare. So we have to just make sure that we're doing the research behind it. Yeah, so I was just going to... Um... I was going to highlight one aspect of what Sarah just said, which is specifically, I mean, sensors are kind of interesting case. So, so quantum sensors have been around more than many of the other kind of new quantum technologies that people are interested in developing. I think atomic clocks, you know, became mature in the late 60s when we changed our time standard even to reference atomic time standards. So in that sense, a lot of the applications, you know, are a little better known and it's a little better known where the pitfalls are. But in many of these quantum technologies, there are these you know, pitfalls somewhere between like the theory and the application. And they're usually not in the fundamental physics, but more related to the way that you need to operate a real system. And um, those pitfalls are kind of their own area of research and they're kind of beyond uh, what physicists themselves do. And that's something that's, you know, every, everybody who's interested in these applied quantum systems is starting to have these roadmaps where they, you know, include people, engineers mostly who can you know, integrate these quantum systems and kind of identify these areas where the practicalities of the system that they need will butt up against the reality of, you know, the physics constraints. So that's interesting because one of the themes of, of all of the kind of emerging technologies that we are going to be talking about for this podcast series, either today or very recently or in the near future, are having to address this question of how do they bridge the valley of death? How do we go from concept a prototype for and for a defense application to that full-scale deployment. So it sounds like quantum sensors are still trying to figure that out. And I think that's a really interesting question, you know, within that kind of bucket of technologies, are there are there any that are close? Are there any that are just really far behind? What is, you know, I understand there's a, a set of sensors we could talk about atomic clocks, accelerometers, magnetometers, gravimeters. But a recent Defense Science Board study has stated that, you know, quantum sensing technologies are currently poised for mission use and relative to the other quantum areas of research may be the most mature. So, you know, if we need to pick a couple of those buckets of sensors, what is the relative maturity from the U.S. standpoint? Yeah, so again, it, it really, you know, it depends. The, there are fully mature versions, right? There are atomic clocks on satellites, which are the reason that we have GPS. And those are mature ITRL objects. They're commercial atomic clocks that you can purchase and buy, and there have been for some time. At the same time, those, those objects lag very far behind in performance from what you can get in a lab object. And 
So people who care about maintaining communication channels in GPS denied environments, for example, they want a clock or a frequency reference that will be stable for a long time and doesn't need GPS to kind of correct it periodically. There's a lot of work still to make those portable self-contained systems perform anywhere near the lab state of the art. And so that's really where the research is. And then, you know, there, a lot of the technology readiness levels is defined in quantum technologies by the underlying enabling technologies. So for atomic clocks, often they need one or more lasers, for example, and those lasers have to be robust and portable and low power. And there aren't necessarily commercial drivers for that laser development. In some some cases, it only needs atomic clocks uh, because they're very specific transitions in atoms or ions. And so that that, that development has always been kind of hand in hand for quantum technologies and and will probably continue to be so. But within, you know, if we're going to focus on things that are kind of near term, there's, you know, a set of kind of atomic clocks at much higher stability or much more portable that are kind of nearing high chair level. There's there's gravimeters um, and also magnetometers are, are also commercial, but maybe, you know, there are, no, there are new versions of those that are much smaller and, and more portable also. So there's an older quantum technology for magnetometers and a newer one, which illustrates the point as well. And the newer one is, is you know, nearing high chair level too. And if I can just jump in there, Bob mentioned that GPS is, you know, is underlined by these atomic clocks, which is, you know, a quantum technology, but that the next level of this would be using these quantum clocks that might allow for order of magnitude, better precision, that these quantum clocks can be so accurate that we're talking about not losing a second in, you know, three to four billion years. So being able to use that new precision and be able to, to, you know, improve position, navigation and timing functionality, particularly in areas where GPS might be denied either in an area where GPS is being spoofed or jammed or also underwater or underground where GPS just doesn't work. Being able to use quantum sensing enabled navigation could provide for more precise navigation in a denied environment. And again, you know, where this is in the lab versus actually being able to make something that's small enough and rugged enough and autonomous enough to be able to put out into the field is another story. But the idea that, you know, these engineering challenges could be overcome and that one day might be able to provide this capability is something worthy of, of more research. No, I think that's perfect, Sarah. And that, that really kind of helps us segue really nicely into the next segment. And so kind of what I'm taking from that is, you know, when we talk about atomic clocks or accelerometers, as you mentioned in position navigation and timing, which which is an area that, that in my previous life before CSIS, I was able to work on. The driving force there is how do I get this system small enough, stable enough that it can be man portable or that it can be you know carried and it can help me provide that PNT signal without a reliance on GPS. So if we could start off, you know, I think this is a great area to unpack, you know, what is the disruptive potential as we think about maturing these different systems. Uh, and you you mentioned PNT being able to survive in a GPS degraded or denied environment. But I know in your recent paper with Larry Rubin, you also talk about issues of deterrence and counter WMD. So can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yes. Well, first of all, you talk about some of the engineering challenges to be able to actually get to that point. And there are some pretty significant ones that are engineering or physics challenges to be able to overcome 
These are notoriously sensitive to motion. So taking a gravimeter out of the lab and into a military field is a long ways off. But we keep on having to come back to the fact that if these engineering and physics challenges are overcome, these quantum sensors could both improve precision and accuracy of, say, missile capabilities for either us or our adversaries like China, who are already focused on improving their kinetic strike capabilities. And then you also mentioned deterrence. I mean, this is something we're going to have to be thinking about as well in terms of submarines and what quantum sensing might do in that field. So China is pursuing applications of quantum sensors to detect large metal objects like stealth aircraft, as we mentioned before, but perhaps one day submarines. So if that happened, it would really place the U.S. undersea deterrent at operational risk including degrading what's supposed to be our survivable leg of the U.S. triad. On the other hand, there are some real benefits that the United States could gain from, you know, using this technology themselves, including that submarines could use quantum inertial navigation to help map and detect undersea ridges or canyons or detect mines that usually we would have to rely on on sonar, which can be detected by adversaries. So with all of these things, there's risks and opportunities to any of these applications. Well, and it also sounds like there's a couple of civil applications in there for looking at mapping undersea. We might know more about space than we know about our own planet type of tagline. Are there any other civil applications for these these technologies that would affect people's everyday life? Or are they just really too specific that only a certain type of occupation or, or use case? Well, sitting at the WMD Center within the DOD, I focus mostly on the military applications, but I think that brings up a really important point that we should be utilizing all that's happening in the commercial world in terms of quantum both communications, computing. And yes, you're right. There are some sensing applications as well that I'm sure Bob can talk a little bit more about that we should make sure that we're leveraging that and finding out what the military applications might be. Yeah. So I guess if we focus on PNT for just a minute, if you look at the civil applications of PNT, they're actually, I mean, the, the problem is GPS has done an amazing job of solving those, right? It's very cheap for us to use GPS to do navigation. There are a couple very niche cases where it doesn't work well, right? But even those are getting better. Like it used to be that you can use GPS in cities very well, for example, but we've kind of solved that. So, you know, there there's... There's a few commercial applications or, or maybe more generally civilian applications for magnetic field imaging, for example. You can measure like human brain activity, for example, by putting magnetometers around the head. So that's one example that's been around for some time with like an old superconducting type of quantum sensor. And is now there's interest in importing it to a newer, smaller version that could, could enable more things, but very little with like very large markets behind them, I would say. And so there's not a lot of driving innovation aside from you know, government DOD interest in these quantum sensors. Yeah, so maybe more broadly, if, if we look at all of the all of the other applications you can imagine, I mean, the, any anything that uses a sensor is a candidate to replace with a quantum sensor. So the things that usually motivate going to a quantum sensor would, would probably be needing to achieve the ultimate in performance. And again, there are a few niche cases where that's true in non-DOD environments, but for the most case, uh, that's a, a DOD type of problem. And that was one of the findings of the Defense Science Board study that I think Lindsay mentioned earlier, was that these are all important. They're all going to have important capabilities for the military. However, quantum computing and quantum communications are pretty well in hand by industry, but sensing is really an area where we need to put in a lot of research and investment and imagination to make sure that we have all the capabilities that we might need, because it's not going to necessarily happen elsewhere in commercial industry. You know, that's an, an excellent point to bring up, because so often in 
conversations around emerging technologies. It's how can we leverage where commercial is going? And I think it's an important distinction that we can call out here today to say there's going to be a, a stronger need for federal research and development in this particular issue or this particular uh, technology set versus relying on the commercial sector. And so how do we think strategically about where do we place our quantum investments based on our knowledge of where that commercial R&D is going to go and where we need to have a little bit more federal R&D. So excellent point to draw out that really fits nicely in with the theme of, of a lot of the technologies that we're talking about. I, I just wanted to ask, you know, what's next? What should we be watching as DOD and the U.S. government continues to invest in quantum sensing? Where are the areas that are maybe ripe for next, like near-term type advancements? And maybe where are the ones that if you're a high schooler or college student listening to a podcast like this, that you might get excited about being able to work on one day? There are two things I guess I would call out. So one of them is driven by kind of, you know, the U.S. like approach to funding quantum. So a lot of the, uh, like the National Quantum Initiative, a lot of the DOD documents, they have a flavor of connecting, you know, people from multiple disciplines in coming up with things to do with quantum sensors and in making the quantum sensors. And so the way I imagine this ecosystem is at the bottom, you have a set of emerging technologies. It's like a pyramid, right? So the base of the pyramid is the emerging uh, enabling technologies for a quantum system. And so for me, I work with atoms, right? So those enabling technologies are the tools I use in my lab, lasers and, and vacuum systems. And then above those are the quantum technologies themselves. So again, I, I you know, those are the atoms and ions that I use in the, the ways that we, you know, hold on to them in the lab. And above that is like some kind of quantum sensor, let's say, so a magnetometer or a clock. And above that is an application of that device. So that would be GPS or PNT. And in that hierarchy, it's really important that they all get developed together, that you expand every level of the pyramid. Because even, you know, expanding the base of the pyramid will really impact the things that you can do at the very top. So the example, again, atomic clocks, making them so that you could put them on satellites is the reason that we can have GPS. And of course, if you imagine, I mean, GPS wasn't commercially funded, but it has huge implications for commerce, right? And so there is, you know, some interplay between the two. They're not separate. So a lot of uh, progress in those enabling technologies will take us very far in broadening the set of applications that we can ultimately get to. And then the other thing, which is kind of more, you know, in my field specifically, is there are people talking about this quantum 2.0 revolution. So in, in this formulation, quantum 1.0 is mostly what, what we have been doing in quantum sensors for a long time. And atomic clock is an example. You measure the energy difference between, you know, two levels in an atom, and that's a reference for a frequency. In quantum 2.0, you're using the full tool set of quantum mechanics to make better sensors. So you're using entanglement and you're using atoms that are kind of, you know, can't be described one at a time, but have to be described collectively. And there's a lot of good theory that says that that should give you really big performance enhancements, but there are a lot of really hard challenges to doing that. They're not even all engineering. And so that's kind of where, you know, that's where the field of quantum sensors is, is moving to next is Aside from, you know, better engineering and better enabling technologies, you know, studying this kind of quantum 2.0 phenomenon and how that can be leveraged for, for new sensors. Got it. So we need to be looking at the pyramid of all of these enabling technologies. I assume that's a quantum 1.0 pyramid. And then also looking ahead a little farther down the road to watching how this new quantum 2.0 starts to develop. Yeah, that's that's accurate, except the way I would phrase the quantum 2.0 is it's actually in the pyramid somewhere. So if you think about quantum technologies as one of the layers, right, the things that people like me 
are doing with atoms and ions, that's like that's a whole other thing that you could do that would enable things up higher on the pyramid. Got it. I feel like that's very appropriate for a quantum discussion to have a layer within the layer and we have to be watching all of the different layers. So that totally fits with everything we've been talking about today. Yeah, I was going to say, Sarah, similarly, what are some of the policy challenges and opportunities that we'll be facing in the next couple years as these systems continue to develop? I think that quantum needs to remain a priority focus area for DoD investment. Luckily, OSD uh, Research and Engineering has quantum technologies as one of its top 11 modernization priorities, but sensing in particular should be highlighted alone because of its implications for warfighting. So I was really pleased to see the announcement a few months ago, I think in March, about the Center of Excellence on quantum sensing specifically between Delaware State and the Army Research Lab. So I think that that is a a great step to making sure that quantum sensing is is getting the kind of investment to be able to grow that pyramid. And then just last week, the Congressional Research Service put out a primer on defense applications for quantum technology, which was another great step because we've seen quantum technologies highlighted among emerging technologies, but really great to see it getting its own focus. And it put out some really good questions for Congress to consider, including what Bob was talking about is how much should Congress invest in that underlying technology? So I think that that is a really important thing that we need to be doing. And then also, what are the commercial advances to be leveraged for military applications? And then finally, better understanding the maturity of our competitors' military applications of quantum technologies and really doing the kind of research and investment to understand how far along they actually are. So that's really important. I think these questions laid out by CRS are important ones for Congress to be considering. So before we wrap up today, and and thank you so much, you know, it's always great to know what the experts are watching so that we know what to keep an eye on also. Is there any upcoming work that you would like to highlight that either of you are putting out or any final topics and parting words before we close today that you would like to share with us? Well, I'll just say related to this conversation, my main area of research is actually in disinformation and influence operations. I'm doing some work on disinformation and arms control at the moment. So this was a bit of a stretch for me to go out and and be able to talk about this new area that I thought was an important thing that we really cover for emerging technologies. But given that, I'm really sensitive to this issue of hype and myth and speculation and how dangerous that can be and is a huge problem when we're talking about quantum. Because when we're talking about these really complicated emerging technologies, distilling that science so that it's relatable to policymakers, but then realistic enough to the science and the timelines and the likelihood. But I just want to say that we don't want that to limit our imagination about what these technologies could do, because the fact is our adversaries are really investing and researching. And if they overcome some of these engineering hurdles and are the first to deploy these technologies, it will impact the way that we fight. But that issue of media and conjecture and public opinion and misunderstanding of quantum science is a really important thing that we always need to be keeping in mind as we think forward to some of the applications of quantum. Yeah, that's the same point I would make more or less, which is that quantum is kind of a hype word now, which is a very strange position for me to find myself in. I mean, I feel like before I just made people's eyes glaze over. But It's really important to understand, especially for quantum sensors, that ultimately, you know, if you have a quantum sensor and it's a magnetometer, right, at the end, like somebody's going to put a set of specifications on it, like what is the smallest magnetic field you can measure, what's its frequency response. And that spec sheet is going to look like anybody else's magnetometer spec sheet. And it's only when it's better somehow that you really have to like pay attention to it. And so there's lots of speculation about 
you know, the high level things that, that those better magnetometers might allow you to do, but there still needs to be a lot of research in how that will work and what are the limitations that aren't even, you know, they're outside the quantum system itself. They're like, you know, realities that like the magnetic world is very noisy, for example, right? That's, you know, I can measure a magnetic field very well, but mostly I'm just measuring like the magnetic fields that we're generating by accident very well. And, you know, the question is whether that's useful. So that's just one example, but there are many examples like that where having a quantum thing won't make everything that you do with that thing better. So I, I think it's important to kind of remember that that we're in like some kind of hype cycle with the word quantum anyway. And then also, as Sarah said, like it's important to pay attention to where that could lead. And I thought that her take about the policy implications of claims made about quantum sensors is really important in its own right. Um, you can think about that outside of what those sensors are doing right now, right? You can just take seriously the promise that they have and then what impact that has on, on policy. And I think that's why it's so important for policy folks to partner closely with those who deeply understand the science and why I was so grateful to be able to partner with Larry Rubin and Bob and all of uh, my colleagues at uh, Georgia Tech Research Institute. These collaborations are so important because ultimately we really speak different languages and a policy person and a physics person might come at a problem in different ways. So we can really help each other see different sides of this challenge. As a policy person myself who also, well, Lindsay and I are both Georgia Tech grads, um, so near and dear to our heart. But as a policy person who works with engineers, not just Lindsay, but my other teammates, it's it's definitely a good collaboration. And I feel sometimes like this emphasis on STEM really separates that education, can really separate out the good interrelationships and interplay that we need to make any of these technologies successful, but also to just keep in mind that unfortunately they're not magic. Bob is not a magician and sprinkling some quantum dust on some things isn't going to just solve all of our problems. And I have a feeling this is what we're going to find again and again and again as we continue through this podcast. Well, thank you both so much for joining today to help us demystify the technology, to cut through the hype uh, and to further our understanding of quantum sensing technologies. All right. Wow. I definitely feel like I know a lot more than when we started, but I want to know, Lindsay, what were your big takeaways? Well, I'm really excited that we got to have this super nerdy conversation about a very niche aspect of, uh, I guess, the broad field of quantum. So I do hope our audience really loves that we got to dive into quantum sensing. I think this was, I mean, this was such a throwback to my previous life in engineering because we would, I worked conceptually with a lot of quantum sensors. So we would look at how could you use systems that measure acceleration better or systems that can perform better guidance, navigation, and control functionality or systems that can make minute measurements of the Earth's magnetic field or the gravity field for all types of military purpose. Um, a lot of them are connected to GPS degraded or denied environments where you won't have connection to that really fine resolution, super accurate GPS signal. And so it was really neat to be able to talk about where is this field developmentally? Where is it going? Because this was something that we say, you know, if we're going to be operating in a GPS degraded environment, we need to be able to, you know, have a similar functionality of GPS. Uh, and quantum sensors are one way in which you could achieve that. So it was a really nice throwback. I think 
It added a lot of nuance to the conversation. I really wish we had been able to talk more about, you know, just specific development milestones with accelerometers. So sensors that measure acceleration or gravimeters. So sensors that measure the Earth's gravity field or magnetometers, sensors that measure magnetic fields. Um, Because I think one takeaway that I got from the conversation was that all of these different types of sensors, they have different benefits, they have different levels of maturity, they have different uses. And so even though we were diving into, you know, if you think about it as like a quantum umbrella, even though we were diving into quantum sensing and not even talking about computing or cryptography or communications, it still felt like we were not specific enough to really have a good conversation. Yeah, I had the same sense of we were talking so broad, in which to me, I was very surprised that this was very broad. But I guess with quantum, it's just it's so nuanced and the technology is so different and at such different stages that you really have to talk individually. But I didn't feel like we got super deep into any one area, but just tried to cover this broader perspective of where the technology is at, how it affects our national security, and really like how underdeveloped it is. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but it's it's relatively new and we're still exploring all that quantum can do and and help and in which environments, like you said, it could be useful or these types of sensors could be useful. So, and one of the big takeaways from Sarah and Larry's report is really that we should be focusing this R&D, this like very early stage effort from the Defense Department into quantum to answer a lot of these questions, because we're not even sure, you know, we think we have the right questions, we think we're asking and we're investing in the right places. But our competitors, our strategic competitors like China and Russia are also moving at incredible pace. Yeah, I mean, and even even talking about that, like having that level of nuance, like Bob drew out the example of like, we're using atomic clocks. That's an example of a quantum sensor. It's not far off. We have it now. But then there are sensors that, you know, maybe offer, you know, a higher, higher sensitivity or like a, a longer term stability for measuring, say, like acceleration. And maybe that's being demonstrated well in a lab. But like one of the challenges that that I ran into in my previous career was, you know, accelerometers may be great, but you had to get them down to a size where they could be man portable. So if I have like great results in a laboratory, that's not going to help me because I need to be able to give this to, you know, a, a man or a woman out in the field doing land navigation without a GPS signal. And so part of that problem is how do I... How do I reduce the, the, the swap, the size, weight, and power to get it to a man-portable form factor? And then even when we talk about it, like that may be closer than, say, like quantum computing. And so just being able to think, think across these different areas of like how do we allocate resources? Where do we put R&D? How do we think through the use cases Uh, And how do we figure out, like, what are those next hurdles that each specific type of sensor needs to overcome? Well, and, you know, it's not just size, weight, power. It's also being in different environments, right? Not a lab. So what happens if dust 
you know, it, it's exposed to dust. I imagine that really will screw with some of these sensors and, and things like that. So you really have to make them usable, not just smaller. And then, I well, I think what was something that was really, you know, a takeaway for me and, and for maybe some other policymakers is just the different nuances of the different types of sensors. So it's not just enough for us to fund quantum we have to strategically fund different pieces at different, and they're all at different stages. And that's really difficult for DOD and for Congress to get their heads around, I think. Yeah, that was super interesting was to hear about the commercial versus public sector incentives. So this is something that comes up constantly in conversations about emerging technologies, where they're like, well, we're going to let the commercial sector do the R&D. And so it was really insightful to have Bob tell us that you know, in some areas of quantum, there are commercial incentives to do R&D, that research and development, like computing and cryptography. But quantum sensing, as it's kind of its own little field, really lacks the commercial R&D. And so that is a place where if the Department of Defense is thinking strategically about where does it place its limited resources, maybe it does need to be allocating more into the quantum sensing R&D, supporting development and commercial uh, in, in computing and cryptography, but just knowing that those incentives are different. And so there may be a bigger lift that needs to come from the public sector on quantum sensing. And so even just having that like understanding of, of the, the, the field, I think is helpful for policymakers moving forward. I will say I, I was in a conversation today and somebody said, in reference to, you know, geopolitical competition and how do we gain strategic advantage? And it was the blanket terminology of like, well, when quantum and AI come online and it was like nails on a chalkboard (laughs) because I wanted to be like, hey, buddy, slow down. Let's have a conversation about this. Hey, buddy, listen to these podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, yeah, like they're, this is, it's not just going to magically come online. And, and even if it does come online, you know, one, one instance that, you know, we would talk about in the world of position navigation and timing and PNT is maybe you're not going to have a radical improvement in the type of, of, of position and navigation data that you're getting. But what you now have is you have a resilient system that can handle having a GPS denied or degraded environment, which is super important when we think about you know, doing land navigation, if we're, you know, prioritizing the Indo-Pacific, thinking about how do you navigate across the expanse that is the Pacific Ocean in a GPS-denied environment. Uh, and so maybe you're not going to have that, you know, massive step change in capability, but you have a more reliable and resilient system, which is, I mean, that's huge. Yeah, and that's a lot of what, you know, we hear about in other areas of emerging technology for the department, that these technologies are not just new capabilities. They're not just adding new missions to what you know the Defense Department can do. But in reality, they're making our capabilities more resilient and allowing us to operate in different types of environments more easily. And so it's not like, what did Bob call it? The hype, like the hype of quantum. I found that the, the hype is a lot louder than what these capabilities actually do. And so I don't want policymakers to get disappointed or turned off when they realize the realities of like, well, this is not a sexy new shiny toy that we get to play with. But in reality, it's going to make 
people a lot safer or their jobs easier in these denied environments as we, you know, look at future conflict. Oh, yeah. And one, I think one other point that came up was, you know, that that quantum sensing may not even be the solution for every problem. And this is something that, you know, a throwback to the AI episode, AI is not the solution to every problem. And similar to that example, you know, there may be use cases where you don't necessarily need a quantum sensor. It's not offering you benefits or an improvement in, you know, whatever metric that you're looking to improve. And so perhaps you stick with the sensors that you have, but that's all really use case dependent. And so having that conversation, and that's what I really liked about Sarah and Larry's paper was that they did dive into some of those use cases specifically where quantum would be a difference maker. And so how do we start thinking through you know, the, the strategic and the operational and the, the tactical implications on these few priority areas, um, because these are the areas where we're going to see real impact from quantum sensing. And we will put this paper, the link to the paper on our website. So if you're interested, go read it. It's fantastic. It's really accessible and written for, for anybody, I think. Seconded. It's a great paper. Um, we'll also link to, there's a few other studies out there that we mentioned Kelly Saylor at CRS, who does just excellent work on uh, a lot of emerging technology issues, just wrote a quantum primer, so we'll link to that. There's a um, Defense Science Board study on uh, quantum sensing, computing, and cryptography, uh, so I certainly encourage everyone to, to dive in for your weekend reading. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in two weeks.